0: We have uh, recently begun a series of messages that focus our attention upon God's ultimate goal for all of his children, and that is our spiritual maturity. God is not content, will he, nor will he tolerate his people remaining as children. In fact, he often in his word rebukes those who continue in childish and irresponsible behavior. And one such example is found in the book of Hebrews, and if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, which is one in front of the book of James, which we're going through. But in the book of Hebrews, we read these words in uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. God is not content that we remain childish in our behavior nor in our responsibilities before God. In Hebrews chapter 5, we pick up these words starting in verse 11. We read, concerning him, now he's talking about Melchizedek, which precedes this particular uh, verse, says concerning him we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull in hearing it says for though by this time you ought to be teachers you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of god and you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is a baby but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. One of the things that's very true about the word of God, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof or rebuke, and for correction. There are times where God just gets in our face and tells us where we need to change, what we're doing wrong, and how to go about making the changes that he wants us to make. There are times he just tells it the way that it is. And in this particular passage, we see him saying to this group of people, you know what, concerning Melchizedek, we have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You've become apathetic toward hearing the Word of God. You've become distracted by people walking in and sitting down after everybody else is sitting down. There are things that just take your attention away from the Word of God. You know, you're looking out the windows, you're checking the grocery list. There are things that it's kind of like as childish, if you've ever told your children something, it's a, it's a picture uh, to me of those who as we're talking to our children, we hear them basically say this, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. And you almost have to come back and say, yeah, 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 if you've heard it before, why aren't you doing it? And if you've heard it before and you're doing it, we wouldn't be having the same discussion. Yeah, 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 you've heard it before. You continue to do it. Bottom line is this, is that God is saying, look, you know what, if you've heard it before, why am I having to tell you it again? Live it. He said, man, I'd like to teach you a lot more, but we're going back to basics here again says, for though by this time, notice what he says, by this time, by now, in your walk or in your journey in being, quote, a Christian, by this time now, as these years have passed and all the things that you've learned, by this time, now, finally, you should be teaching others. Jesus' last parting shots to his disciples were that we would go and make disciples of all nations. And as we were going, we would baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching others to observe all that he's commanded us. That that's our responsibility, to learn from our teacher, from our master, to become ultimately a teacher ourselves, so we can teach others around us who are following after us the things of God. He's saying, by now you should be teaching. By now you should be a disciple and a disciple-maker. And you've got to stop and ask yourself the question, and that's this. If that's our responsibility, I'm going to ask you a tough question that I ask myself, and we always have to examine ourselves as we come to the Word of God and measure our life against the standard that's objective and does not move, and that's this. If my responsibility is to teach others about Jesus Christ and the Word of God, my question for you is the one you have to ask of yourself, and that is this. Who have I been teaching recently? And on top of that, what have I been teaching And if you don't know what to teach, then it's time for us to get a good old scolding and a rebuke from God. Because God is saying that, you know what, if you are not making disciples, you are not doing what I commanded you to do. By this time, you should be teachers. And here we go again. We're starting with the basics all over again. It says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. You're a child. You haven't grown in your faith. You haven't become a man or a woman of God that's making a difference for the kingdom of God. You're still childish in your behavior and you're irresponsible. He says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He's saying because you've learned and then you go and live it, your senses have been trained and now you can get into the deeper things of God. Is it any wonder that there are so many of us who are still childish in our relationship with God, who are still immature, when we think about the fact that the word of God is so watered down to reach the lowest common denominator, that those of us who need challenged and and taught, and we need meat, I mean, think about it, if any of us have ever tasted a good steak, how many of you would go back to, once you've eaten steak, go back to eating baby food again? I mean, when was the last time that any adult in this room craved that stuff that's in jars for babies? Oh, the strained peas look really good today. It's like nobody goes back to that shell. But what's interesting in our walk with God, it's like, wow, this is good, strained carrots and peas again. Wow, this is good stuff. And we're so content to remain chil- children and irresponsible that God just says, you know what, here's, here's my command to you, grow up. Amen. Amen stop being a baby stop being dull of hearing stop saying oh i've heard that before oh the book of james we're studying again i've heard that before you know or whatever it is you know oh i've heard that before what i've read that before oh really man then you know what then you should be teaching others all the gems and pearls that god is, is teaching you see far too many believers are like this the following little girl that i heard of recently when it comes to understanding scripture so says the Sunday school teacher was carefully explaining the story of Elijah the prophet and the false prophets of Baal. And she explained how Elijah built the altar, put wood upon it. He cut the steer in pieces, laid it upon the altar. And then Elijah commanded the people of God to fill four barrels of water uh, with water poured all over the altar and the sacrifice. And he had them do it four separate times. Now the teacher said, Can anyone in the class tell me why the Lord would have Elijah pour water over the steer on the altar? And a little girl in the back of the room goes, Oh, I know, I know, I know. And she said, yes, sweetie, why, why did God have him do that? She said, well, it's obvious. Because they had to make the gravy. <laughs> and you sit there and go, you know, and, what's only, and the only people that laughed are the people that know the story of Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal. Everybody else is like, it sounds good to me. You know children often have an immature simplistic way of viewing life and they see things from a childish perspective I like the new teacher was trying to make use of a psychology course she said uh, she started her class by saying everyone who thinks you're stupid stand up after a few seconds only little Johnny stood up in the back of the room the teacher looked and said now Johnny do you really think that you're stupid and he looked and said no but I felt really bad seeing you stand there all by yourself another little boy watched with fascination as his mother smoothed coal cream all over her face she said mom he said mom why do you do that she said well to make myself beautiful said his mother who then began removing the coal cream with a tissue he looked at her and thought and said what's the matter Are you giving up finally there was the math teacher saw a little kid not paying attention one of the little boys and she called him and said jimmy What are two and four and 28 and 44? Little Jimmy thought for a second and quickly responded. Um, NBC, CBS, HBO, and the Cartoon Network. (laughs) From a perspective of a child. Now, the thing that's funny about that is it comes from the mouth of babes. But the same response from an adult, I would guarantee you, would get a totally different reaction. We laugh at childish behavior. Or a childish perspective But when an adult does the same thing It's just not as funny is it In fact it's taken a totally different way And so as we look at this Since God's goal is to quote Grow us up spiritually I think we need to be aware of the methods He has chosen to accomplish the task And that's what's brought us to our study In the book of James You see each book has a theme And the theme of the book of James, if you want to turn ahead, if you were in Hebrews, turn ahead a book. But the theme of the book of James could be summarized with this particular command, and that is this. To be mature or to grow up. It is a book that talks and focuses on the practical aspects of becoming mature as believers in Christ. To grow up. In James chapter one, we've learned that the uh, believers are in danger, that believers are in danger of falling uh, before the attacks and the pressures of trials or testings, as well as falling before the attractions and pleasures of temptations. See, fail- failure on our part in either arena will severely hinder our progress towards spiritual maturity. And God wants us to be spiritually mature, complete, lacking in nothing, to be conformed to the image and the likeness of Christ to become a disciple so we in turn can make disciples. It's important that we recognize and understand as we take a look at what we started uh, the last couple of sessions together, and that is we need to look at um, what it means to be growing through temptation. Growing through temptation. In James chapter 1, let's pick up at verse 13 and we'll go through uh, verse 18. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow." In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his his creatures. In this particular passage, we've learned several things. The first thing that we learned is the substance of temptation by definition. The Bible teaches that temptation is the enticement to do that which is wrong. The enticement to do that which is wrong by promising something good in exchange, something pleasurable in exchange for that compromise to violate the standards of God. God says there are some things that are just right and there are things that are wrong. And we need to recognize and understand that. It's called moral absolutes. We live in a society or a culture today that wants to do away with moral absolutes. It's right or it's wrong only based on why you did it or why you're thinking of doing it. It's right or wrong based on you know, your feelings at the moment in time in which you entertain certain behavior. And God says, you know what, I don't buy into any of that. There are some things that are just right, and there are some things that are wrong and they are as clearly defined as the laws of the universe as God has established them. We need to get back to that understanding so temptation is the enticement to get us to do that which God says is wrong in exchange for that compromise we are promised certain pleasures or some type of personal gain. The second thing is we noticed in verse um, uh, what do we got in verse 13 is that the source of temptation is that God, first of all, is not the source of temptation. We cannot blame God for the choices that we make, and we cannot blame others and their involvement in our life. The Bible says and clearly teaches that each individual is responsible and held accountable for his actions. Throughout the word of God, God makes it very clear that you and I are personally held accountable for the actions that we take. Solomon summed it up best in Ecclesiastes 12 when he said you should fear God. Uh, You should also recognize the fact that, you know what, that we should obey all his commandments and realize that on top of all these things that one day every human being will give an account to the God who created him for the decisions that he or she has made. We will give an answer for those things. The Bible says that all things are opened and laid bare before him, speaking of God, to whom we have to do, speaking of our accountability to him. Psalm 139 says there's nowhere we can go, there's nowhere we can run, there's nowhere we can hide, that God isn't aware of the things that we're doing and we will be held accountable for those things. We need to get that drummed into our very souls once again that everything that we do, we will give an account to God. Now, thank God there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he has died in your place on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible in Romans 8.1 says, you will not be condemned before God for sin, but you will still give an account to Jesus Christ for what you did in your lifetime after you've come to put your faith and trust in Christ. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And every non-believer, every person that's rejected Jesus Christ and said, it's good for you, I don't really want anything to do with him, I don't really believe in him, I don't care what the, you know, what the game plan is, uh, that's not for me, I'm happy for you, blah, 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 all those things that people say, that those people will appear before the great white throne judgment of Christ. And they will be condemned or already condemned for all of eternity. And in addition to the fact that they will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called the lake of fire or as we call it hell, the reality is this. They will still give an account for how they live their life and it will determine the degrees of their punishment for eternity. We need to get that drummed into our souls again. That we're accountable before God. The Bible goes out to give us the steps of temptation or the tendencies that that we go through in order to end up in what I would call the basement or the cellar of death. Notice what he says. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust or own desire. Every one of us have certain things, as I mentioned, The desire is the first step that leads us into the basement of sin and death. Every one of us has a certain peculiarity or a certain chink in our spiritual armor. And we need to become aware of that. We need to take a very honest and open self-evaluation before God and say, God, if there's any wicked way in me, if there's anything, that I, any areas in my life where I am prone to do what's wrong before you, then help me to understand it so that I can deal with it. Because the Bible says the process that leads to sin and death starts with our own inner desire. Stop and think about it. If your desire is always to be right, then, the, then there will be a point in time where you cross over that line and, the, and, the, and that's called the sin of pride. If your desire is to gain attention for yourself, then there will be times where you'll be enticed to do that which is wrong before God so that you can accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, making a name for yourself. If your desire is for sexual fulfillment, and there's nothing wrong with that unless, of course, you cross the line into areas that God calls sin. He calls sin. He calls sexual sin fornication for those who are singled and having sex outside of marriage. He calls it adultery for those who are married to another spouse and having sexual, uh, having sexual relationships with someone other than their spouse. He calls it homosexuality for those who are trying to fulfill a sexual desire with someone of the same sex. He calls it rape at times when there are those who want to fulfill sexual desires in a way that's not pleasing to God. We need to recognize and understand that all of us have a peculiarity or a chink in our spiritual armor. We need to be aware of that. If the desire is for rest or just to have rest on a continual basis, then the desire for rest may turn into the sin of laziness. And we need to be held accountable for that. If the desires for material possessions, the Word of God says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And some who, want, who, who long for it have wandered even from their faith in order to achieve those material desires that they want. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they embezzle. They do things that are wrong before God. We need to be aware of that. If that's our weakness or our area, we need to be aware of what that area is. The desire for escape. To escape the realities and the accountabilities of this world, we may cross the line into drug abuse and alcohol abuse and other ways where we escape from the responsibilities and pressures of life. And God calls every one of those things as we cross that line, sin. It starts with desire. It leads to deception. It's okay in your case to do that. You're deceived into believing that which God says explicitly is wrong. You're deceived into believing that in your case it's okay. Because of your intentions. Because of, God knows your heart. Yeah, he does. That's why he says it's deceitful and wicked and above everything else. And who can understand it? But God, God protects us from our own heart. He protects us from our own desire by clearly telling us what's right and wrong. We need to realize that. It starts with desire. It leads to deception to fulfill those desires in a way that's not pleasing to God. It ultimately ends up in disobedience where we act wrongly before God and you know what, the final result in that, 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 uh, that passageway to the cellar or the basement is death. Spiritual death. And spiritual death always means separation. For the believer, it means a separation from the fellowship that we can enjoy with the God who created us. We need to recognize and understand these truths. And that's why in verse 16, if you've got your Bibles open, notice what he says. Hey, you know what? Don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. Don't fool yourself. This is exactly the process that always leads to death. It starts with your own desires. It goes to deception. It goes to disobedience, which is a choice on our part to do that which is wrong before God. And it ultimately ends up giving birth to the grandchild of death. And we need to recognize that that's the way it is. Now, fortunately for us, God also wants us to understand the solution to the problem of temptation in our life. He wants to use temptation to bring about spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. And I love that. Because as hard as it is to believe in our, it's not my fault, I couldn't help myself, the devil made me do it, excuse-filled society, God tells us that we as believers can avert the process or the steps that lead to sin and death. We can resist temptation or the enticement to do evil. Now some of us are sitting there going, no, you don't understand. The desire that I have is so overwhelming and so strong in my life, there's just no way that I can resist this. There's no way that I can escape this. And to you I say this, you do not know the Word of God. You do not know the power of God. You do not know all the blessings and benefits that come with being in Christ. Because the word of God clearly says there's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You know what's so wonderful about that is this, that you may be sitting here struggling with something that the person next to you or behind you or next to you on the other side doesn't have a clue and could care less about. It's like, hey, I don't have a problem with that. But you know what? What you're struggling with, the person back there may be struggling with. And what we need to understand is this, is that the deception of the enemy is to help us to believe or cause us to believe that what you are struggling with is so strange and so weird and so bizarre, the last thing that you can ever expect is to get help in that area. And that's why sin is always in darkness. And that's why we try to cover it, because we don't want to expose it. The first step in solving the problem of temptation or sin in our life is being open and honest about what I'm struggling with. We've had people in our life who have come to our Bible studies week after week, and some of you have come year after year, and you are harboring sin in your life, and you are allowing that to destroy your life and your relationship with God because you are afraid to own up and admit, I'm struggling with this. And I can't believe that anybody would have compassion or sympathy for me. I can't believe anybody can point me in the right direction to free me from this. Sin is bondage. Sin is like walking around with big chains and, and anchors on yourself. Dragging them along in your life and being content that this is just what well, I guess. This is my burden. You, don't understand, you need to understand something. Jesus Christ took the burden of sin away. And we need to believe that, and we need to understand that, and we need to live accordingly. He wants to free us from that. It's like the story, of you ever heard the story of how circus people train elephants? They train elephants by putting a, a, a chain on their feet when they're real young. And they chain them to a stake. And when the elephant's young, they try to walk away from the stake, but the stake pulls it back. And so the elephant begins to learn that, you know what, I can't free myself from the stake. And the elephant grows from a baby into this monstrous creature, and they still got the thing chained to a little stake and a little chain. If an elephant was smart, he'd be going like, get that off of me. You can't hold me back in a stupid little bicycle chain. Look how big I am. I'm going to take this chain and wrap it around your head. Good thing elephants are stupid. But what's your excuse? Think about it. we got this chain of sin that we're hanging on to saying, oh, I can't free myself, oh, I can't free myself. Okay, I'll just enjoy it while I'm here. But I'm not enjoying it, it's driving me crazy. I hate every minute of it. See, we need to be able to be open before God and say, God, I want to be free. There's no temptation overtaking you that isn't common to man. Other people suffer and experience the same temptation that you do. But God is faithful. But God is faithful. And he won't allow us to be tempted beyond that which we're able. But you know what he'll do? With the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so that we can endure it. Do you believe that or not? Stop being a dumb elephant. Stop being content to do that which is wrong before God and allow it to destroy your fellowship and your walk with God. I'm speaking specifically to men and women who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And the reason I say that is this. Because if you have not, then you are captured, captive to sin. And the reason that you're captive to sin is because you are a sinner and it comes with the territory. You do not have a new nature. You've got a nature that is corrupt before God and you'll do that which comes natural. That's why when you even hear these words, you say, you know what, hey, I've struggled with this all my life, I continue to struggle with it, and I don't find any freedom. What you need to understand and you know is this, that Jesus Christ came to set us free from sin. We do not have to live like that. For the, for the man or woman who has accepted Jesus Christ, the Bible says we have a new nature. Old things pass away. All things become new. That we are free in Christ. That he frees us from the condemnation of sin. And he also frees us from the mastery of sin over our life. When the believer sins, he chooses to do so directly disobeying what he knows to be the truth of the word of God. And we need to take responsibility for the action. I am responsible for my actions before God. As a believer, I choose when I choose. I choose to sin and disobey God. And I know every time I'm doing it that that's exactly the choice that I'm making. We need to understand and recognize that. Now, what's interesting is this. If we look at this particular passage, I want to share with you three steps or uh, maybe three practical, workable truths that uh, will help us, uh, lead us on our journey toward Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity. Whatever temptation you may be facing right now, and God knows what it is, whatever that temptation is, these three steps will keep you from descending to the basement of sin and death. If you apply them in your life, they will get you back on track in your relationship with God. You will grow through the testing rather rather than die through the temptations that come with the test. So that's what we're going to take a look at. The solutions to temptation, number one, is this. Remember God's character. Remember God's character. Look at verse 17 for a second. It says, Every good thing bestowed in every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing bestowed in every perfect gift comes from God. The first solution the Bible offers to temptation is rooted in some very solid and sound theology. And you know what that is? That God is good. God is good. So completely good that everything he gives is good and anything he does not give does not come from him and therefore is not good. God is good. He is good all the time. Perhaps some of you taught your children this very basic, simple prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That's some solid theology. God is good. Let it soak in for a moment. You see, the reason that's so important to remember the character of God is that the deception or enticement used to get us to act wrongly on our desires is rooted what? In questioning the goodness of God. Think about it. The root of temptation is to question the goodness of God. God doesn't want you to enjoy your life. God doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't want you to be like him. If you eat of the apple, you'll be like him, and God doesn't want anybody else but him to be him so that he will be God, and he doesn't have to share his godhood with anybody or his kingdom with anybody else. God is somehow or another holding back on us. That is the furthest thing from the truth because in him there is no darkness at all and God is good. God wants what's best for us and that which he gives us is good and that which he gives us is all that he thinks we can enjoy at that moment in time and if he wanted us to have more and thought we could handle more he would give us more. He is not trying to hold anything back from us the only thing he's trying to do is not lead us into temptation but to deliver us from evil. God is good. And we need to recognize and understand something and look at the illustration that he uses and I want to get this across to you. Notice specifically that God is called what? The Father of Lights. That is that God is the creator of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the lights of heaven. Listen carefully at how God describes for us how we can know that he is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God moved across the surface of the deep. And then God said, what? Let there be light. Let there be light. And God saw that the light was what? It was good. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days, and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser night to govern the night. He also made the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. What he did was good. Psalm 8 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man, Lord, that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you would even care for him? As I look at everything that you've done, I'm just in awe of the fact that you would care about me. When I look at the vastness of your creation and your universe, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day and night, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. You notice that? that? Day after day, that which God has created pours forth speech. The question is this, who's listening? Who's listening? And what do you hear God saying through his creation? Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, what are one of his invisible qualities? That he is good. How does he demonstrate and display it? Here's how he did it. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. You notice what he says? God is saying this. Listen to me carefully. God is saying the next time that you look out at night at the stars of the sky or at the moon or in the daytime when you get up and you see the sun shining, every time you see that, it is shouting to you and I that God is good. Let us thank Him for the sun. Amen. God is good. Let us thank Him for the stars. Amen. God is good. Let us thank Him for the moon. Amen. Do you realize that the only planet in our universe, this planet, our planet, is the only planet that's tilted with a 23 degree axis? And the reason for it is simple. As scientists look at it, they say, man, it's the only planet in the solar system that's tilted 23 degrees. Why is that? Well, because if it wasn't, we would die. Because the solar caps would, would gain such an enormous mass of ice, it would just crush our planet. But because it's tilted at 23 degrees, it's almost like a chicken on a barbecue. It just kind of rotates it just right, just so that we don't fry and we don't get squished. Man, elephants, chickens, man, where could you come to hear stuff, stuff like that? <laughs> but think about it for a second. You know, think about it. If, if, if this planet was any closer to the sun, we would die we would burn to death. If this planet was any further away from the sun, we would freeze to death. If we didn't have the moon to regulate the oceans, we would die because plankton is a result and plankton is the lowest form in the food chain and it's because of plankton that all of life survives. God put the moon at night not only to give us life but also to clean up the oceans and without it we would die. God is shouting forth day and day and day and day and and night and night and night and man turns his back on God and says, it's all just a big accident. How stupid are you? How amazing to me it is that we still have a debate about teaching evolution in our schools that by now we're not wise enough but maybe we're so deceived by our own foolishness that we continue to promote a lie to children who need to know there is a God. He did make you. You were created in His image and you will find value and you will find worth in a knowledge and a relationship with a God who even when you're in rebellion against Him sent Jesus Christ to die for you. How great a love is this that a man would give up his life for his friend. We need to recognize and understand how much God loves us. It's no wonder kids kill kids. It's no wonder people, women abort babies. Why? Because they're not babies, they're something else. Why? Because all we are is a product of ooze and we all jumped out one day and the next thing you know we're monkeys and then all of a sudden we're carrying briefcases. (laughs) Where'd all this come from? For the wisdom of man is foolishness to God and the evidence of God the Creator overwhelms us and He pours forth speech day and day. Night and night. And we look at it and we say, hey man, let me ask you a question. Is the sun good? Is it good? Do you benefit from its light? Do you benefit from its heat? Is the moon good? Is the sun consistent? You know what's interesting to me? Is it consistent in giving light? Is it consistent in giving heat? You know, you you realize how consistent it is? Every night, you can turn the news on and watch the weatherman and the weatherman, and the meteorologist, excuse me, the meteorologist, they'll point to this thing and they'll say, Sun rises tomorrow at what time? And the sun will set and it doesn't rise at all because it never goes anywhere. It appears and disappears. But it's still there. But the point is this it is so consistent that man can figure out exactly when it will appear and disappear. That's how consistent it is. How consistent is the moon? You can get a calendar and you can look months in advance at whether it'll be a full moon, a half moon, a crescent moon. We we know. That's how consistent it is. When was the last time that you went to bed worrying about whether or not the sun is going to disappear? Oh, I sure hope the sun's there tomorrow and it's still the center of our universe. Man, I am burdened by that. Nobody goes to bed worrying about that. You may think, well, I hope it's sunny tomorrow because we're having a picnic or whatever. But you're not going, gee, I sure hope the sun doesn't disappear. as a Nobody goes to bed worrying about it. Why? Because God is so consistently good, it's one less thing that we have to think about. The issue is this. And the stars are so consistently good. you realize that all of our satellites in orbit are all based on star locations? Isn't it amazing? For centuries, men and women that have been out at sea look at the stars to be able to gauge what direction they're going. Why? Because they're fixed points in the universe. And they're so consistent, they never change. The north star doesn't get, get, wake up and say, I think I'll be the south star today. Why? Because God has everything in order. The cosmos is from a word which means to put in order. It's a word we get from, from, from the Greek cosmetics for a woman to arrange in order those things that she puts on her face. Hey, not a sports illustration. Give <laughs> break. That was good. Look at the depth that you got here you're dealing with. <laughs> the point is this, that God is Good. And notice what it says, and with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Can I just throw something out to you to think about and chew on for a little bit? If there is a shadow in your life, it is not because God has moved. If there is a shadow in your life, it is because you have turned your back and walked away from God, prone to wander from the God I love. It's because you are guilty before God. When God walked in the, in the garden and he was looking for Adam and Eve, it wasn't God who changed. They had changed because of sin. And they hid and turned their back on God. We need to recognize it's not God's fault. It's our fault. When there are shadows in our life, and I'm going to call them sin because that's exactly what they are. When we, when we harbor sin in our life, it's because we have turned and walked from God. We have yielded to temptation We come on Sundays and we just feel the warmth and the light of the sunshine of God. Jesus said, I am the light. And we bathe in his light. And then we leave here and we go about our business during the week and we turn from the light and we turn toward the shadows. We need to be consistent in our walk with God in every area. Let me give you a positive and a negative illustration of this principle from Scripture. The positive example is of a man named Joseph, a slave in the house of the Egyptian uh, officer uh, Potiphar the story is found, and read it on your own in Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 9. But for those of you, the gist of the story is that Potiphar had trusted Joseph with everything in his control. Potiphar's wife thought Joseph was a hunk, a good-looking guy, and wanted to have sexual relationships with Joseph. Joseph would not do it. And the reason that he would not do it, even though she said, Look, if you don't do it, I'm going to say you raped me anyway, so you might as well do it and benefit from it. And here's what he said. He said, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? It wasn't just against Potiphar, his boss. He understood that all sin went back to his relationship with God. Because if we base it on our relationship with one another, sometimes we'll think, hey, you know what? That person deserves it. I'm going to do it to get even with him, or I'm going to do it to get even with her. And he hurt me, she hurt me, I'm going to hurt them back, so therefore I'm going to do it. We got secular psychologists who will tell you, hey, your husband had an affair, well, then you need to go out an affair, and everybody will be even, and everything will be better after that. Like, what nonsense is that? How stupid is that? But that's the wisdom of man, contrasted to the wisdom of God. God said, Hey, you know what? Everything you do, I'll hold accountable. And Joseph said, I can't sin against God. Look how good he was to me. Look at everything he's given me. Even with all the tests and the trials that God threw in his path, you know what Joseph realized? God is still good. God is still good. Now, the other side of the story is same type of sin, sexual sin. This time, it's David, King David and Bathsheba. This time, King David looks upon Bathsheba, sees her, is interested in her, sends someone to get her to find out who she is, brings her back to the house, and the next thing you know, they have sex. they're guilty of sexual sin. And sin brought forth, what? Death. And many people died because of it. The child died, Uriah died, and others died as a result. But you know what? This is what Nathan, the prophet, said to David. And listen carefully. In 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 8, it says this Thus says the Lord God of Israel It is I, God speaking to David, said, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives, into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. You notice what God said? Look at everything I gave you. How could you have fallen into sin? And you know how he fell into sin? Because he forgot the goodness of God. Instead of looking around at the things we don't have, it's time we start looking at the things that God has given us and praise God for them. God is good. And notice what he said, and if that hadn't been enough, I could have given you anything else because I own it all. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have or I have that hasn't been given to us by God anyway? God owns it all. He gives it to us. He entrusts us with it. We're just steward of His resources. He said, If that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. What was Adam and Eve's problem? They could have stuffed their face and buffet for eternity with everything God offered to them. And the only thing they started to dwell on was the one thing God said, Don't do, because the day you do it, you will die is it because god didn't love them no it's because he was protecting them from wrong choices god often warns his people throughout the word of god to not forget the goodness of god if we remember the goodness of god i guarantee you we will not fall into sin we are like immature children who don't realize or appreciate all the things that their parents do for them think about it you have food You have shelter, you have clothing, you have education, you have medical needs are met, athletic fees are paid, you have a vehicle to use, or a vehicle we got you, we pay for your insurance, we protect you, we love you, we encourage you. And you know what happens? They usually take it all for granted. And I'm not being critical or condemning. All I'm trying to do is bring about a contrast between immature people and mature people. Immature people think, hey, you know what? It's still not enough, everything I have, and I still want something else. The mature person says, man, do you realize what it costs to have all those things? And I am just grateful that I have them and thank God that he's given to me. Are you childish or are you mature in your relationship with God? Because if you are mature, guess what? You will praise him for what you have and you will not give a second thought to those things you don't have. Because if God wants you to have it, he can get it to you. Amen? You know what Job did to counteract temptation in his life? He came to a very simple conclusion. Naked I've come from my father, mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord has given me everything that I have and the Lord has decided to take it all away. But you know what? I'm going to bless his name and praise him anyway. And Job fell on his knees and worshiped God. You know the answer to temptation is to remember the goodness of God and to get down on our knees and praise Him and thank Him for every day that He gives us and all the blessings that we have. Stop taking it for granted and stop looking around and coveting thy neighbor's goods and stuff, thinking that somehow God's holding out on you, that it would lead you to cross the line to be enticed for that desire to end up being sin. We need to praise God more regularly. Number two, we also need to remember His word. We need to remember his word because the word of God is what gives us insight that we need into all these problems of life. Think about it. We've just remembered the word of God by remembering the life of Joseph, by remembering the life of King David. The word of God teaches us much. And I just want to go through with you quickly some ways that we are to counteract temptation in a practical way that will lead us away from sin and into greater fellowship with God and more spiritual maturity. Number one, notice the word of God in Romans 6, 12, 13 says this. Don't tolerate temptation. Don't tolerate temptation. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. What is he saying? Take the responsibility to stop putting yourself into into a position where you will be enticed to do evil and then make a choice that's wrong before God. You and I take responsibility for how we live our life. Now, let me get very practical and personal. Let me upset as many people as I can. That was my goal this morning when I got up. God is saying, you stop presenting your body as instruments of wickedness. You stop doing it. Which means this. If certain musics music or lyrics weaken your resistance, then you stop listening. If certain movies or videos weaken your resistance, that inner desire that you have that would be tempted to enter into sin, then you stop watching. If you can't go to the beach without lusting, then stay away from the beach. If you can't look at certain magazines without lusting, then stay away from those magazines. If you can't watch certain shows without that feeding that animal within you, then don't watch them anymore. You shut the TV off. You stop going to the store and renting the videos. You stop going to the movie. You, you, you. It's up to you whether you want to be free from this or not. You stop hanging around certain people that lead you to do those things that are wrong before God. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We tell our kids when they're growing up, hey, I don't want you hanging around with him or her because they're just not a good influence. And our immature, irresponsible, childish response from kids always is this, oh, you don't know them like I do. No, you don't know them like I do. And you certainly don't know them like God does. Give us a little bit of credit for living a little longer and understanding the dangers that are out there. But as adults, all of a sudden we're like, oh, I can handle myself. You are just as stupid as your kids. And maybe that's why they're the way they are. You're all swimming in the same gene pool. We think that we can do things and it's not going to cause problems, but it does. And God says, you stop doing those things that feed that desire in a way that's wrong before God. You cannot play with the animal in you without becoming holy animal. Play with falsehood without forfeiting your right to truth. Play with cruelty without losing your sensitivity of mind. He who wants to keep his garden tidy doesn't reserve a plot for weeds. We don't harbor an area of our life that's not right before God. And I don't care what area it is. Peer pressure is huge. I love the story. Maybe you heard the story of the guy who turned 104 years old. And the reporter said, wow, what's the best part of being 104? You know what he said? No peer pressure. <laughs> That's so good. I love it. But, but it's true. You know, we have to take responsibility. You know, with, the, with computers and with the Internet and with all the stuff that now comes into our homes, we have to be on alert at all times, spiritually alert to the dangers that now knock on our door and come into our house. I like what one little girl said, and I love how she said this. She said, you know, there are two people living within me. There's Adam and there's Jesus. And when temptation knocks on the door, if Adam goes to answer the door, I'm going to sin. But if Jesus goes, I'll be able to resist the temptation. Wow. Isn't that the truth? We need, to don't, we need not to tolerate temptation. Stop playing with it. Use the right resistance. Oftentimes the Bible says, as far as sexual sin, it says to flee from immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee the evil desires of your youth. 2 Timothy 2.22. To flee from it, just like Joseph did, as we learned in the story that he fled from Potiphar's wife. To run from it. To use the right resistance. And we need to recognize and understand what that is. If you have, if you have the desire to, to gossip or slander or lie, you need to use the right resistance. And you need to get one of those self-help tapes. And in the air conditioning business, we call it duct tape. And maybe, maybe that will be the self-help tape that you need. Just tape your mouth shut. I mean, if that's what you've got to do, that's what you've got to do. It's radical. This is radical stuff. But sin is radical. Why do you think Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out? If your hand wants to reach to seal something, chop it off. He wasn't making a point to go around self-maiming, but what he was saying was that sin is so radical, we need to respond in a radical way. And if you can't say things that are right before man or before God, tape your mouth shut, and you know what? And you'll be pleasing to God. Whatever you've got to do, stop tolerating sin. Use the right resistance. I like what Job said. He said this, man, I made a covenant with my eyes never to look lustfully at another woman. Job 31.1 I made a covenant with my eyes. One day I got up and I said, Lord, I'm making me a covenant with my eyes. I'm never going to let these eyes look at another woman in a way that would cause me to want to have sex with her other than my wife. I think every guy specifically guys, since they were so visually oriented. I think every man who wants to live a life that's pleasing to God, who wants to grow spiritually, should make a covenant with his eyes before God. God, do not allow me to use these eyes to look at anything that would deceive me into acting upon the desire that's in my heart in a choiceful manner that is wrong before you. Oh, but I don't want to be that radical in my relationship with God. That's a problem, isn't it? See, we're content on being irresponsible. We're content on being childish. We become dull of hearing, so we don't even apply any of these things. Proverbs four twenty five says, Let your eyes look straight ahead and fix your gaze directly before you, and we know from the Word of God that our gaze should be where? On Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy before him, what, endured the cross and despised the shame. Our eyes should be fixed on Jesus, because we want to be like him anyway. We want to walk toward Him at all times. We won't want to be looking around the deceitfulness of of the riches of this world or the worries of this world. We don't want to be like Lot's wife. That's why it's in the Word of God so we can learn something from her, from her experience to look back and to turn around and to look around as if somehow God didn't have something better in front of her to look at. We need to have our eyes trained on him to look at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and say, Lord, all the distractions around me I could care less about, and I'm not even going to listen to the voices, and I'm not going to look at any of those things. I'm just going to keep my eyes fixed on you because you are the one that I want to be like. What would Jesus do in this situation? He wouldn't turn around, and he wouldn't look around, and he wouldn't entertain doing that which is wrong before God, not only because he's perfect, because he is our perfect example. We need to keep our eyes straight ahead of us. We need to remember this too, that the final pain is always greater than the temporary pleasure. The final pain is always greater than the temporary pleasure. So many of us, we tolerate sin, we nibble, on the hook, we nibble on the bait and we get a little of the bait and we go, wow, you know what, there was no hook that time. We keep going back and going back and going back until finally that hook gets us and then our life is destroyed. Think about it, even in our culture today, I think I was watching the news the other day and here's the actor Robert Downey Jr., and what a great example of a person who is hooked by sin and by destructive personal behavior. He had gotten probation, probation, probation because of drug violations and drug offenses. He had gone to rehab and all these things. And you know what? And he still continued to violate his probation to a point where he was sent to state prison for three years this past week. And I look at that and go, wow, if that's not a perfect picture of sin. We think we're going to get away with it. We continue to do it. The pain isn't as great as we thought it would be. And wow, you know, I heard guys that, that have had affairs say, man, this, that was the best sex I ever had. Really? For a while, temporary pleasure. Moses understood that. Hebrews eleven twenty four. by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. As believers, we need to recognize and understand something. You know what? The reason that sin is so pleasurable is so that it entices more of us to entertain that type of behavior. And when the consequences are there, we rarely ever are around to see the people who suffer the consequences because they always fade out of sight. And so all we're left with is a picture of, well, it didn't seem like it was that bad. Really? It doesn't seem like it's that bad? You're always going to pay more than you ever bargained for. You see, here's the difference between God and the devil. When God gives gifts, they're always free and he adds no sorrow to it. When Satan gives gifts, he never gives anything because you always pay more than you ever thought you would. There's nothing free. There's nothing free that comes with temptation. There's always a price to pay and you and I pay the price. Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross to free us from sin. He bought us with a price. We're to glorify Him in our bodies because it's the Lord God whom we serve. That's the big difference, isn't it? And the last thing we need to do is what? Memorize the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. We're to remember the Word of God in the illustrations and the examples, but more importantly than just remembering the Word of God, we are to memorize the Word of God. Every person who wants to grow in their faith has to be committed and dedicated and diligent about memorizing Scripture. Psalm 119, 9-11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Simple, by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did he do? He answered the tempter with scriptural quotes. And you know what the devil did? He fled from him. The devil breaks out in hives when you and I quote Scripture. He can't stand the Word of God because the Word of God produces life and he is hell-bent on death and destruction. He's our destroyer. But the Word of God gives life. If you are struggling in an area of your life, I'm going to give you a simple practical suggestion and that's this. Read every passage that's in the Word of God that has to do with the area that you are struggling with. If it is sexual sin, read every passage that deals with sexual purity and the consequences of sin. And if it's your thought life, read every passage that has to do with dwelling on that which is good and holy and pure and of good repute, that we should take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If it's on lying or cheating on stealing, read every passage you can find and memorize every scripture that you can find that deals with being honest. If it's words coming out of your mouth, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such as a word that is edifying for the need of the moment. Whatever it is, if it's anger and rage, be angry, but yet sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with those issues in life that cause you to want to be in a fit of rage. The Word of God is filled with practical ways to escape temptation. We need to meditate on the Word of God so when Satan gets in our face and tries to tempt us, we can spit the Word of God right in his eye and cause him to flee from our very presence. And if you can't memorize, then read it. Pick it up and read it. If you're struggling with a thought or you're struggling with doing something, then pick it up and read it. You can do that. But we don't want to do that because we want to tolerate it. We want to have everything. We want our cake and eat it too. We want our relationship with God and we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Wow, isn't that a great world we live in? But it's not God's world. And if you do that, you'll never grow spiritually. Some of us have never gone past go because we are harboring sin in our life. And that leads us to the third and final point, and that's this. Not only should we remember the goodness of God's character and remember the word of God, but we also should remember the plan of God. In James 1.18, notice the plan of God for every one of his children is a very simple one, and that's this. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. To the Jewish readers understood what it meant to be the first fruits because they understood that God was to get the first fruits of their produce, the best of what God had blessed them with. And they were to give it back to God as an offering or a sacrifice to continually remind them of the goodness of God. Why does the word of God tell us that we're to tithe or to give? because it's a constant reminder that everything we have has been given to us by God. It's a, it's a thank you back to God. Does God need our money? I don't think so. You know why? Because it's not ours, it's his anyway. So once we grasp that, we'll understand it. We're not giving him anything from us. We're just giving back what is his and that's how he wants it done. That's why we do it. But every time that we give, it's a reminder of the goodness of God that everything we have has been given to us by him and it's a blessing from him. How wonderful that is when we remember the character of God. The first fruits are this, that you and I, as men and women, who have come into a relationship with God by believing in Christ, are the first fruits, or the best of God's creation. Do you realize that? That you and I, as men and women, who have trusted in Christ, we do not have to live in sin anymore. We do not have to be chained to the stake of sin anymore anymore. And you know why? Because our God is bigger than that puny little chain. You and I need to understand that God's plan for our life is that we are conformed into the image of his son, that we grow into Christ's likeness on a daily basis. And the only way that can happen is if we resist the temptation or the enticement to do that which is wrong before God. Because sin is stunts our spiritual growth. And you and I cannot redeem the time wisely if it's spent sinning before God. If there's any darkness in your life, it's not because the light of God has shifted or changed. It's because you have personally decided to turn your back on Him. I had a friend who used to um, train championship uh, Rottweilers, and he used to go to dog shows all the time. One of the things that was really interesting as he told us how these things are done he said basically what happens is they have a dog and they would put the dog in front of the master and the master would stand i'd be the master and oh then we're not going to go there um, and so and the dog would be right here let say and you be the dog <laughs> but you know that ain't gonna work so i'm the master i'm training the dog the dog is right here okay the dog is to focus his attention on the master at all times the dog is not to move or do anything until the master gives the command what they would do as they are training these dogs is they would take a big old piece of meat and they would lay it next to the dog. And as the dog in its immaturity and in its quote childish actions continued to look over at the meat and go for the meat, it would be disciplined by the master. And so finally it would get to the point where you could stack up a hundred steaks on both sides of that dog and you know what? That dog never did anything but keep his eyes fixed on the master or on the trainer. And I love that illustration. And I'll tell you why. Obviously you can understand it. Because if we have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter what's stacked up next to us, that we are subject to his command in our life. And we will do nothing but obey his voice. Why? Because he said, my sheep, they hear my voice and they obey my words. If you love me, you obey my commandments. My challenging question for you is this. If you love God, then you obey his commandments. And you'll keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And never forget that sin will take you further than you intended to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin will cost you more than you were willing to pay. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we just pray that we can understand that as Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross, for those of us who believe that he conquered sin and he conquered death, and that we no longer have to be captive or slaves to sin, God, help us to stop presenting ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness or putting ourselves simply in, in position where we have nothing, nothing but failure ahead of us. God, help us to look at the people that we associate with and to see whether they further our growth or they, they stunt or hinder it. God, help us to take a look at the things that we put before our eyes and our ears. Do they stunt our growth or do they cause us to grow closer to you? God, we just thank you for your goodness and every day the consistency of it as we look at your creations and the heavens declare the handiwork of yours that we would be mindful of your consistent love on a daily basis for us and how good you truly are because all the things that we have are given to us by you and are good and you add no sorrow to it. And if you choose not to give us more, it's because you realize that it will not be good for us in our relationship with you and we praise you and thank you for that. God, help us to remember that your plan is that we become more like Christ every day, that we grow in our spiritual maturity, that we're conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, that every day we keep our eyes fixed on him so we would not allow the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of this world and all the rest of the distractions keep us from walking in a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, we just thank you for your word and we pray that we continue to be dedicated and diligent to memorize it so that we have it at a time where we need it. You tell us the sword of the spirit is the word of God and it's there to fight the enemy and the attacks of the enemy and the temptation. God, you're so good that you give us a way of escape that we'll be able to endure it and to bear it. And we just thank you and we praise you for the fact that we no longer have to be attracted to the pleasures of temptation, that we can turn from the enticement to do evil and do that which is right before you. And we just thank you and praise you that you freed us from sin and that we can live a life that is filled with the benefits of walking in obedience with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.